0: We'll be in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter number 49 this morning. Isaiah chapter number 49. By the way, i talking about. What? It's not on. I turned it off. <laughs> um, appreciate those that uh, prayed for me. I did not kind of got some kind of I guess I thought I had the flu but I guess it was a some kind of 24-hour bug but it wiped me out I appreciate Jake jumping in and filling in this past Wednesday and after uh, after the men's breakfast I kind of started not feeling well again and I was beginning to worry and in fact I'd text Jake and asked if he'd be willing to jump in again and uh, I got feeling better and he didn't see the text for a little while and I I didn't want to Jump on him twice like that, <laughs> and and uh, at last minute like that. But uh, appreciate those of y'all that prayed, and I'm looking forward to delivering this message here this morning. I love to preach from the Book of Isaiah. Seems like I, was, looking back, it seems like I, I, Isaiah and Psalms. I seem to always be going back to those two books. I want to read the first 13 verses of Isaiah chapter number 49 and. We're going to focus just on a couple of verses as we really dig into this. But it's a beautiful passage that really focuses on Christ. And I I want to read it just because, one, it's beautiful. Two, it's such a wonderful message. And three, just to lay the context for our sermon here this morning. So Isaiah chapter number 49, beginning in verse number one. Listen, O isles unto me, and hearken ye people. From afar the Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me. It made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. And said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work with my God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Verse 6. And he said, "It, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Verse eight, thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in the day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourselves, they shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water shall he guide them. And I will make all my mountains away, and my highways shall be exalted. Behold, these shall come from afar, and lo, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinom. See, no heavens, and be joyful, O earth and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people, and will have mercy upon his afflicted. My mind went back to this passage. I thought back, and be honest, I arrived at this thanks to Groundhog Day, believe it or not. I preached a sermon, I put together a sermon back when I was in Bible college, and it was a tremendous blessing to me, and I think about it from time to time. I, I, I put together a sermon called uh, Being a Man of the Shadows, and kind of a little word study throughout the Bible. and talked about being in the shadows, and it just was a tremendous blessing to me at the time. I still think about some of the things, but verse number 2 was one of the passages that uh, I, I used in that sermon. And as I was thinking about that sermon and the idea of shadows, brought me to this passage, and and the Lord just took the truths contained in the first few verses of this and really pressed them upon my heart. And I want to speak from those this morning. This chapter starts a new section. If you were to kind of thematically look at the book of Isaiah, this chapter, chapter 49, starts a new section that goes to about chapter 57. And it focuses on the servant of the Lord. And you ask, well, who is the servant of the Lord? Is that Isaiah? No, that is the Messiah. That is the Son of God. That is Christ. And we see the prophetic foreshadowing of him. And this picture culminates, of course, in chapter 53 with the beautiful picture of the suffering Savior who who suffered us, who through his stripes we are healed. In this passage here... We can look at it, and it's, like I said, the whole chapter is just marvelous. We see the Messiah's preparation and his placement that God prepared and had Christ in the right place at the right time for his ministry. That's the first three verses. Verse 4, we see the Messiah's defeat and discouragement. And I think to Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. I think of Christ dying on the cross, and it may look like a defeat from the outside, but God wasn't done yet. In fact, the next verses five through seven, you see the Messiah's restoration and reassurance that God was not done with him yet, that victory was still ahead. Verses eight through thirteen, look at the Messiah's impact and influence. And the verses forty uh, verse fourteen through twenty six, focus really on Israel. We did not read into that passage, but a lot of it is talking about how Israel is going to be restored and how they're going to come back to the God of their fathers. And uh, then the Gentiles even get some love in there, too. It talks about how the Gentiles are going to help care for Israel, and uh, it's a marvelous passage. I, I wish we just had time to just dig right on into it, but we don't. I was thinking, there's the glorious themes and topics in this passage, and just Isaiah just rings forth like this. I, I think of Isaiah. If it was music, it would be a swelling uh, symphony orchestra. I think of, you know, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, something that just stirs your heart when you hear the the, the tones and the beat and the the flare of of, of the trumpets. But I just want to dig in just to a couple of verses here, in fact, verses 1 and 2 for the most part. But before we begin, just a few little primary statements here, foundation to, to lay as we go forward. First off, I am convinced that this passage is primarily about Christ. I'm not going to take that away from this passage. I'm going to make some different applications from it. But this is talking about Christ. In fact, you'll remember it was Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. What was he reading? He was reading Isaiah. He was reading Isaiah chapter number 53. And he asked, he said, Well, who is this talking about? Is this the prophet? Who's who this talking about? Well, you can look at this, and it's pretty obvious this isn't talking about Isaiah. There's something greater being spoken of here, and the parallels are too great to dismiss between what's written here and then the the work of the Messiah. And I'll remind you that Christ is our ultimate example. I like to say that Christ is our ultimate example, but he's God. Can we reach that level of perfection? No, we cannot. I think Paul is closer to being what an attainable example. If we could just kind of reach the plane that Paul did, I think we'd be doing awful good. But Christ is our ultimate example. In fact, you can find different phrases and, ver- and verses in the Scripture that talk about that. 1 Peter 2, 21 talks about following in his steps. So I'm going to use his example to apply some things to our life here. And I also want to say, in, in some cases, I'm going to word things a little bit differently than I normally do. My, my kind of custom is when I preach... And, and it's a conscious effort on my part. I do not like to preach down to people. Um, I'm, I'm not some, you know, great high and mighty spiritual guy up here telling you, you wicked evil sinner. You know, might have to do that to Jack every now and then, but not, not very often. But uh, I, I don't like to preach down to people like that. So often when I preach, I, I like to, I like to because when I'm preaching, I'm preaching number one to myself. You're just kind of getting in on what the Lord's laying on my heart. So it's kind of like that old saying, they say, you know, you point your finger at somebody, you got three fingers pointing back at you. When I'm preaching, I'm preaching at myself more than anyone else. So I often will on purpose use terms like we and us. I'll say, you know, God wants us to, I won't say God wants you to. To drive home some of the points of this, I'm going to use some more personal language. I'm going to say, you know, you sometimes, but just understand when I say you, I'm part of that too. Okay, I just want you to understand that a little bit. I'm not being over the top in this, but I just want you to understand that. So I want to dig into this, into some things in those first few verses that talk about the Messiah, his preparation. And I've got six different things I want to highlight that talk about God preparing and placing the Messiah for his place of service in the plan of God. And I want to apply those to our lives. So the first thing I want us to see is in verse number one. That is, we see that God calls you. Scripture says, The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. By the way, I kind of like that. From before he was born. So similar language in uh, Jeremiah. You didn't just exist once you came out of the womb. You were a person in the womb. Amen. Amen. Paul wrote in Second Timothy chapter one verse number nine that, that God called us with an holy calling, acor- not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. And I was thinking about the idea of calling on God, and oftentimes it seems like we focus on our end, that we call upon God. In the words of Jeremiah, call unto me and I will answer thee. Or in the Romans, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But I'm afraid we often forget that the first call that took place was from God that God called us. There was a general call that goes out that all men are sinners and all men must repent and turn to God. There's a personal call that then comes into an individual's heart from the Holy Spirit. John 6:44 says no man can come to me except the father which has sent me draw him that God has an individual call towards an individual to draw them in. We respond to God's call and call out on him for salvation, and that's in that process is where salvation takes hold in our heart and in our soul. But God does not simply call us to turn from sin, he calls us toward him. You gotta get that right, okay? You gotta, you gotta understand, it's a very basic thing. He doesn't just call us to stay pure from sin. He calls us into service and a relationship with Him. And in doing so, He tasks us with a mission. We know the general outline from the Scripture. That We know the commandments of God. We can look at the Ten Commandments. We can look at the Beatitudes. We can look at the letters of Paul. We can see all these wonderful commandments that say, you know, don't lie, tell the truth. You know, treat others as you want to be treated, all these wonderful commandments and principles in the scripture. But God has a personal will and a plan He reveals to you alone. And I think we might make light of that too often. We say, well, I'm not called of God. I'm not called to the ministry. I'm not called to this kind of the environment I seem to have grown up in it seemed like, you know, God only called you to go into full-time ministry. God only called you to be a pastor or a preacher or a missionary or something like that. And honestly, I felt like that really shortchanges God, especially if God calls you to full-time ministry. It's not like you can write yourself a check and be full-time. Anyway, we'll, we'll chase that rabbit some other time. But... um you can say, I'm not called to the ministry, I'm not called to the missions, yet he calls each of us to a life of holiness and a life of service. What's your personal call? I, I cannot say, but I know this, that he loves you, he's prepared you, and he has a plan for you, and to not to deny that is to deny the great needs about you. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, and Salvation Army we think about today, we think, oh, the red kettles and the... Charity programs. That's not what the Salvation Army started. The Salvation Army started out as a force of evangelism. You go read about it in the late 1800s, early 1900s. That's what they did. You had the Salvation Army, they'd have a band play and they'd get a crowd together and they would preach the gospel. Thousands, if not millions, of people were saved because of the Salvation Army in those early days. It's a far cry from what they are today. But William Booth said this Not called, did you say? not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. Then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether or not you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. God has called you. The answer, the, the question is, will you heed the call? The second thing I want us to look at: God has called us. The next thing we see is that God gives you a message. We see in verse number two, it says, "made say made my mouth like a sharp sword." It's wonderful imagery, which for the sake of time I'll speed through this, but what is that talking about? It's not a physical sword, it's the word of God. Ephesians six seventeen, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews four twelve, the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Revelation one sixteen, talking about Christ, says out of his mouth with a sharp two-edged sword. Revelation two sixteen says, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Revelation 19.15. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. With it he should smite the nations. It's echoed again a few verses later in verse number 21. The scriptures are the weapon that we have been entrusted with. And they're full of commands and principles about how we should communicate with each other. We could, we could spend months going through the references just in james alone or just in proverbs alone but i want to tell you this got to be careful here it's not sharp or harmful words that attack and wound the word of god is a sword but that doesn't mean our words need to be the truth of god's word is what must be effective not just our words you need to make sure that you use that weapon wisely On the targets it was intended for the truth will wound it hurts you ever been in a service where the preacher steps on your toes a little bit you ever read the scripture and you become convicted the Holy Spirit presses upon your heart an area in your life that needs attention but it's sharp enough without adding your own jabs and thrusts to it what comes out of your mouth can someone accuse you of being a Christian I was, uh, a couple summers as a teenager, I worked at a youth camp up in West Virginia, and um, too bad Carrie's not here, she could probably corroborate this story, but uh, they had a uh, basketball camp, it was one of the weeks that they did, and they had kids come in, they coached and did things. Well, my Texas drawl is just awful at times, I know, I love it. But my Texas drawl, um, I had trouble, some of those Yankees up there, they didn't understand me. They, they, they had trouble understanding. me. So I purposely tried during this week, I don't know why, why it popped in my mind, but I said, I'm going to try to talk without an accent. And so I tried to just kind of speak, not British, but you know, but kind of remove the drawl and, and some of the things I would do and pronounce words actually correctly. And um it actually worked a lot better. I was helping run a concession stand there during some of those games, and honestly, people were communicating with me better. That was all fine and good until one of the camp counselors came to me and says, "Hey, where are you from?" I said, "Texas." He said, "Well, I thought by your accent you were from Boston." I said, "That's enough of that. No more. I'll take my drawl." I didn't want to be that mistaken identity to happen again, so went back to my drawl and. Uh, How's your accent this morning? I'm not talking about a drawl or a twang, but as in the words of Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Third, God protects you. Again, from verse number 2, In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me the imagery of Scripture, when you talk about shadows, it can mean a few different things, especially in poetical section like this. It can mean the nearness of something, the valley of the shadow of death. Um, it also can mean protection. It t- uh, talks about being under the shadow of his wings in, 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 uh, in Psalms. Uh, in fact, Psalm 17:8. if you just want to cross-reference on that. And that's what this verse talks about. I think it's talking about protection and sheltering. We talked about that at length last week as we looked at Psalm 23 and we looked at the great shepherd's protection from the dangers around us, how his rod and his staff comfort us. I don't want to go over the same ground on that again today, but I do want to bring something out as I was studying this and I was consulting some of my you know, commentaries and books and, and things on this passage and digging into it. Uh, There's a few things that were interesting. In those passages, such as in Psalm 23, it talks about you know going through the valley of the shadow of death. It talks about preparing a table in the presence of his enemies. It talks about nearness of danger. Here we don't see that. There's no mention of an enemy. It talks about being hid, protected there. Some people look at this and they say, oh well, this is how God protected the infant Christ from Herod when Herod slew all those innocent children trying to kill the Christ child. I don't think so. I think that's far too specific. This is very general prophecies here that are given. I'm no expert on ancient language, but multiple sources I looked at talking about this wording compared it to a sword that has been sheathed in a scabbard. Is the sword hidden away? Yes, but it's in a case, it's in protection. It's covered, it's hidden but until it's ready to be drawn and used. So Christ was in the shadows until that day the banks of the Jordan where John the Baptist cried out, said, Behold the Lamb of God, and he was revealed. So God does for us. He he prepares, he protects us. And then in the words of Esther, when such a time as this comes, he wields us as an instrument of his will. Are we protected? Yes, but it is for a purpose. Next, we see that God prepares you. The phrase there made me a polished shaft. I, I'm no expert on archery. Um, I'm no Robin Hood by any stretch. I don't think I've ever really shot a bow that didn't have a plunger on the end of it. Um, but I was looking last night and at, at, uh, reading into some of the care about uh, the archery equipment. I, I looked on Cabela's and was looking at the prices of arrows. It's not something you can just do. I mean, you can end up, once you buy uh, just at Cabela's prices, which I know that's probably not like Olympic quality or anything like that, but... Uh, but even those, I mean, once you buy the shafts, shafts are 15 to 13 bucks a piece, and the, 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 the arrowheads, broadheads that you put on the end of them, 10 to $18 a piece, and then you, you've got the fletchings, the little feather things on the end of it. And so, I mean, by the time you get all that added up, you've got quite a bit of money invested in that arrow. And I'm sure that those archers in the Olympics, they don't just go over to academy and walk over to their hunting section and pick up some arrows out of there and and show up to uh, compete. Now they're intimately familiar with their equipment. They know when an arrow isn't flying true. They know whether it's the point or the shaft being bent or maybe the fletching's a, a little bit off on the end. They'll carefully pack away their arrows. They don't just let them jostle around. They inspect them for damage. After each use, they'll clean them. They'll bend them a little bit to make sure there's no hidden cracks in them. I think that's what this is talking about. It's God preparing. It is the best, truest arrow in the quiver that you draw when your life is on the line. The arrowhead, you know, is sharp. It's smooth. The shaft has been worked. It's been cleaned. Let me tell you this. God has called you for a purpose. He has given you the weapon of His Word. He has you ready when the time is right. Once again, it's in Esther 4.14, for that such a time as this. God preparing, just as a person smoothing and polishing, sharpening uh, an arrow's point and working and cleaning the uh, shaft of an arrow. I thought of the words of the song, Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior, know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. I challenge you, let him inspect you. Let him prepare you. Next, he sets us aside for a purpose. The last part of that verse is, In his quiver hath he hid me this point, all the preparation's done. It's time for business. He puts, you, just as an archer would put an arrow, he intends to use in his pack. God has you ready to be used. Now, I'm no great athlete, and sometimes if I have to talk about sports, I, it has to be academic. I'm not, you can tell by looking at me, I'm not the great athlete or anything. One sport I tried, and I tried, and I tried to really like and be good at, and I failed, was golf. There's just too much coordination involved in it, and I I never could quite do it. But one of the rules I thought of is there is a rule for competitive play. You're limited in the number of clubs in your bag. Fourteen. Fourteen clubs in your bag. When I played last time, which honestly I may have been in college, (laughs) I think, last time I played, a little part three course up there in Lexington I think that's the last time I played Um, other maybe on a driving range or something but I think I probably could have got by with maybe three give me that three wood, give me a seven iron and a pitching wedge and a putter and I I probably would have been fine but for a professional golfer there are choices to be made does he need that sand wedge on top of having a pitching wedge maybe swap out that five wood for a one iron or a driving iron Maybe it just depends on the course, the conditions. Now, for me, it doesn't matter what I take out there. I could probably try to drive with a putter and still drive just as far as I did with an actual driver. But if a guy like Rory McElroy or one of these professional PGA Tour golfers got up there, it makes a difference what they have in their bag. And I'm sure in a course of 18 holes, not every club in there gets used. But the clubs that are there, he knows and he trusts and they're ready. He's carefully chosen that club to be there. Let me tell you this. If God has called you, and he has. If God has saved you, and I hope that he has. If God has equipped you, he has. If God has protected you, he has. If God has prepared you, he has. Then God plans on using you. It's not a showpiece that he makes you out to be. It's a tool. It's a sword that's not a presentation sword. It's a sword that's meant to be drawn. It's not an arrow to put up on display, but it's an arrow that's meant to be drawn and fired. If you're a believer this morning, all that applies to you. He wants to use you. If you're not a believer, well... He's got the greatest plans beyond your imagination if you'll just heed the gospel call. Surrender to the love of God. I'll we'll wrap up here a little bit differently than I, I normally do. Normally I I'm a little bit off on this one than the structure. Usually I like to have a few little closing statements and rehash some things, but a little bit different. Look at the next verse there in verse number 3. It says, Thou art my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Why? Why does God do that? Why does he protect us? Why does he prepare us? Why go through all of that? It's for God's glory. In whom I will be glorified. That's not me. That's not the church that's not Christendom that's not the Baptist tradition what is that that's God being glorified God doesn't do all of this for you to get the glory now I'm not I don't think myself to be a great musician by any stretch I I especially feel inadequate in the presence of Carrie and Annette when it comes to piano playing Never have tried a harmonica, but I know I've never reached the levels that Jack has on that. I've tried a number of different instruments. i tried the guitar, and I'm so used to the piano. I can't get my fingers to do all that weird stuff that you've got to contort to hit those chords. Tried a mandolin, tried a violin. That was really bad. Even had a jaw harp. I think I've still got that jaw harp. I could do that one pretty good. The only thing is if that thing bounces back and hits your teeth, whew, it'll rattle your brain. I, I've tried to play a bunch of different instruments in school I, I played the trumpet for a little while played the tuba for a little while what a bunch of different instruments and what's funny about musicians it, It's almost a unique world If you you have somebody especially a, a somebody relatively new to playing say the guitar And they see somebody playing they hear somebody playing one of the first questions they ask is, what kind of guitar is that? Oh, is that a Martin? Oh, is that a Gibson? What what, what kind of guitar is that? And it's funny because I don't care what kind of guitar I pick up, it ain't going to sound very good. If I were to pick up a $15 violin or a Stradivarius that's worth more than I'll ever be worth, it still would sound like a cat dying if I tried to play it. It's funny how they focus often, and like I say, it's usually the very you know beginning stages, not a professional. But they'll say, "Well, whoa, that instrument!" So many people want to take up a hobby like that. And boy, they, they, they get told, "Oh, you have got to buy a very expensive guitar. You've got to buy a you know a Martin. You've got you got to buy the top of the line pre-war model Martins when they made them you know the right way." You know, they get very elitist when they come to instruments. But I'll tell you this. We are the instruments in God's hands. And it's not for us to bring glory to ourselves because without the master musician, that guitar is just a hunk of wood and metal strings. That violin, is just a pretty little piece of wood. That piano, is just a big coffee table until a musician sets down at it. So it is with us. It's not the glory of being the instrument. It's the glory of the musician. It's the glory that comes from, why does all this happen? Why does God prepare us? Why does God protect us? Why does God use us? Of all the things in this world He chooses to use, He could send angels. He could come down Himself, but He says, I want to use you. Why? Because he gets the glory. He gets the glory when he uses us. If the musicians will come, we'll have a short time of invitation, but I remind you, we are but the instruments. If we make no music, no pleasing sound, we don't bring any value until God picks us up and uses us. When it's all said and done, the preparation, the planning, the protection, it's all about God's glory. And I ask you, what in your life are you doing to bring God glory? Your relationship with Him, being a witness for Him, work of the ministry, what are you doing? What am I doing? What's this church doing to glorify the King of kings and the Lord of lords? the end of the day, that's really what matters. What glory do we bring God? If you'll stand, please. What number there, Ellen? 128 in the heavenly. 120. 120 in the heavenly highways. We'll have a prayer, then the altar will be open. I trust that God has moved upon your heart as He has mine with just a simple truth from this, from this beautiful language. But the fact that God works to prepare us for His use, for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day, for this the beautiful message here found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 49. Lord, I marvel at what you do and how you give people the background. You give people the experience, the knowledge, the training to, to be greatly used. And Lord, that you would pick us, that you would call us, prepare us, protect us set us aside for a special use to have a plan and a purpose Lord what glory there is that we can bring back to you Lord pray that we be faithful I pray that we be faithful to you to that calling that we have and when it's all said and done one day we stand around your throne we may kneel and give all the glory and honor back to you speak now to our hearts I pray it's in Your holy name Amen